One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that everything, simply everything in the whole world, has its own history, like pens, sitting, or hunger. Oh, hunger. I love the idea of the history of hunger, Sam. Uh, in fact, I have only just had breakfast, but I am still starving. Or salt, malt, and Walt. I've often wanted to do a history <laughs> of Walt Disney, a huge fan. Well, or you hate, the history of dizziness. History That'd be of amazing. Dizzy, the history of dizziness. Or, yes. Or the history Wouldn't of it? mice. <laughs> the history of mice. Or theme parks. Or entertainment. Or schmaltz. Or... Also, but going back to the dizziness thing, you can do the history of symptoms. Ooh. Uh, which is um, all sorts of sim- different symptoms. Coughs. Oh, we're example. loving that. Or yeah, we yeah. could do hate, fate and mate. So the history <laughs> of mateship. The history of the friend. That's very good. That? And uh, ladies and gentlemen, just to remind you that they don't have to rhyme. It's just one of James's things. The fre- <laughs> they the do friend have we... to rhyme. They do have to rhyme. <laughs> it's, it always has to rhyme. But however, it rhyme or not, we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew that the history of the table, which of course is connected to hunger, the history of the table is in fact all about politeness, wealth, opulence, display, feasting, sociability, and, of course, King Arthur. Mm, yes, fascinating. Exactly, exactly. Or that the history of the lean, leaning over, James, it was one of our favourite podcasts, Yes, is all about urbanisation, pensioners, disability and extortion. Ooh, mm. loving a bit of extortion. Well, the man not sitting opposite me, because we're the other side of Exeter, we're the other side of the city. Um, let me just say that uh, if there was only one historian in the world, you would want it to be him. It's Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. Hello. Um, and the man sitting not opposite me, because we are both <laughs> uh, separate uh, from each other. Uh, the man sitting across me is the historical Robinson Crusoe of history, the truly wonderful historical adventurer, Dr. Sam Willis. Hello, Sam. How are you on the other side of town? I'm OK. I'm a bit lonely. I'm in my shed. You're a bit lonely in your shed. It might be worth it might be worth talking a little bit about what we're up to at the moment in terms of recording. So normally we record either in your shed or in my tiny box room study. Uh, but we're not. We're we're separate now. Um, we're recording over Zoom and recording separately and then splicing it all together, aren't we? 
We are, and we're saying this because we are acutely aware of our position as historians. And um, so those of you who will be downloading this and listening to it in the next couple of days will obviously know that we're in the grip of coronavirus. But if you're listening to this in 50 years time, you won't know what's going on. No. Um, but we are being um, you know, held apart by social isolation so we don't uh, give each other the terrible virus. Exactly, exactly. We are and part it's... of social distancing or physical distancing, as we are being yeah. encouraged to call it now. And um, we're doing a little series on um, coronavirus-related things. Um, we've done one on soap, which was very good. We did one on contagion itself, recorded in a fever in the car. Um, and this one is loneliness, and it might well spill over into a second episode on solitude. It might do. Uh, yeah, because there's a lot about loneliness at the moment, isn't there, in the press? A lot of people suffering from it. Um, I had my parents on the phone, hello, mum and dad, the other day. They're getting a bit fed up. They're, um, they're stuck in their little house in St Albans. And they're feeling pretty lonely. So not about just being on their own. They're feel you know separated from their family. My, mine, had think... a, mine had a mine called me the other day and had a total panic. Uh, the really? Waitrose had run out of red wine <laughs> to <laughs> deliver. I well. thought I thought first world problems. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but, it, but that's but... interesting, isn't it? It's the fuel of loneliness. What do you need to um, maintain you in isolation? I quite like that idea. Yes. Um, yes. So mm. let's should we do our taxonomy of loneliness? Okay. Okay. So I mean I mean as you said one of the thing one of the reasons that we're interested in loneliness is because people are in lockdown. So people can't get out and particularly people who live on their own or people who are elderly and vulnerable uh, are finding themselves alone and 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 very lonely. Um we are we are forced to be in a situation where we are socially distancing from people, but people have lately asked that to be changed to physical distancing. So while we are physically distanced from people, we shouldn't necessarily be socially distanced. So we should be being in touch with people all the time. But if we're if we're thinking about a history of loneliness, and I've been reading a wonderful biography of loneliness, the history of an emotion by the brilliant sociocultural historian. Faye-bound Alberti, whose work I came across years ago when she wrote a brilliant piece on The Love Letter, uh, and I've followed her work ever since. Uh, but it's a brilliant book, and what she argues is that loneliness is in fact a relatively modern invention. It's not something that you see across history, and you see it emerging during the 1800s. Uh, and it's particularly acute nowadays when it is viewed as a pandemic itself. It's a real social problem. Uh, it's partly because of the stress in the UK in particular that it imposes upon the NHS, upon mental health services. It's also linked to cancer, to heart disease, all sorts of things. There's a minister for loneliness. Um, there, in, in terms of viewing it, it, it linguistically, the term loneliness emerged in the 1800s. And before that, we had something called, the term was oneliness, which is much more about being on your own. But loneliness is something that is different from privacy or being on your own. It's different from simply solitude. And you can actually be lonely in company. So if you can be in the, in the, in the midst of your family, of, surrounded by friends, but still feel detached. And one of the things that we might think about as historians is how we... What, le what kinds of factors led to the rise of loneliness in the West? And you can look at things like industrialization, 
religion, family structure, divorce, the rise of the individual. You know, if we think about Western society, that's been one of the big sort of driving factors that's led to loneliness because people have been, you know, the idea of the individual and identity separate from the collective is something that has been a sort of strong move across history. We can also think about it in creative terms, being alone to write. Uh, I've just read um, Frederick Backman's A Man Called Ove, brilliant Swedish novel. Uh, I read it, of course, in translation, but it's about a man who is widowed and then, you know, explores his life alone and basically tries to commit suicide uh, many, many times. We can we can also see it elsewhere in literature. You look at look at Dickens and Oliver Twist and David Copperfield and you've got their orphans and the, the, the loneliness of the orphan. You can think about it in religious terms. So you can think about um, the sort of hermit like monks. Uh, you can see it in terms of ideas and, and therapy, the way in which psychiatrists look at loneliness. You can see it in how it manifests itself in different situations. So, for example, across the life cycle, um, people who are teenagers, people who experience death and widowhood or old age, the homeless, dispossessed, refugees, all of these are sites of loneliness. You can also think about it in terms of alienation. Um, people who see themselves as outside of society, uh, people who are people who are, are disfigured or disabled or mentally ill or um, people who are in prison, in, in isolation, uh, outcasts within society. The other thing we might think about is how do you look at this in the sources? We'll talk a little bit more about that later on, but how do you see it in, where do you pick up a history of loneliness? Do you see it through ideas, therapists' diaries? Do you see it in ego documents? like letters and diaries? Can you see it in objects, in material culture that prompt a sense of nostalgia which is connected to loneliness? How is loneliness gendered? If you think about the solitary man versus the abandoned woman. Um, so all of these different ways of thinking about loneliness, which is the opposite of sociability. And also yeah. the important thing to think about is as this sort of cluster of emotions, something that is mental but that is also physical, it's something that has a, a deeply negative hue nowadays. So, so that's something that's interesting in itself. So the way in which solitude is in fact something that might be seen as quite positive, time to oneself, a sort of, a sort of individualistic sort of privacy, but actually in looking at loneliness you're seeing something that is a pathology something that is is negative that is actually harmful to one's health there we go there's a starter for 10. that's brilliant I, i'm gonna go home you've just answered all my questions <laughs> i i oh shit, i already am at home yes. <laughs> I'm just really but so the, the the point i think the key point as well to make here is that loneliness itself is a it's it's like a major factor in decision making of, of all sorts which is why as historians it becomes so important um you know, issues about maybe leaving home or marriage or migration or emigration, um, old age as well. Um, and, you know, it becomes an economic thing to do with, with ideas of, of insurance in the future. Yes. Um, um, yes. And, you know, and connectivity with your with your, your friends and your family. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that's why, why it does. It is so interesting. And, and, and the key point as well is that it's experienced and the evidence of it is different across both time and across cultures. Mm. 
And what I like about it is that, you know, this um, wonderful book you referenced, is it's a recent book. Yeah. And for historians, one of the interesting things is to know so why do we suddenly start writing about something? So this is a modern historian writing about loneliness because no one's properly done it before. So it's resonating now. It's a 2020 issue. Um, I suppose she started writing the book maybe a couple of years ago, but it's a very, very contemporary thing. Yeah. And that idea of why we are starting to write about it now will then inform people on what's going on in our society now in 50 years' time. Yes. When they look back on it, say, well, they were writing about loneliness then because X, Y and Z was happening in their society. Yes. So the, the fact that we're interested in the history of loneliness now is curious. It's happened now um, that we are actually doing this. We're, we're talking about this. We've got coronavirus at the same time that historians are writing about loneliness. We're even we're only beginning to to start to understand it. Yeah. Um, and it's not just about finding remedies, um, uh, strategies to cope with it, understanding like the, the sort of demographic import of what's going on. It's also to do with understanding loneliness in the past and how it was experienced in different periods and also in different locations. So yeah. there's a very you know serious contemporary concern and issue here, uh, which I think is particularly relevant and interesting yes and it's interesting to think about this from the perspective of the state as well you know so if you think about the uh the the minister for loneliness that was appointed you know a couple of years ago this is seen as a real concern for society and something yeah. that is a big that is a big cost upon the nation you know if you think about the you know the percentage of people who see themselves as who who, who are themselves lonely and have all the sort of negative sort of physical and psychological problems associated with that, they are, you know, using up a lot of resources that the state needs to provide. And so catering for people who are lonely is one of the things that the state does. Um, so where, should, where, where do you want to start, Sam? Um, yeah, I'll just start very briefly. Actually, I mean, I've, I, there are so many different ways I could think about this, and um, I, I've ended up with about fifteen different topics I could talk about. I don't know what I'm going to get through, and a lot of them are quite brief. But primarily, the first thing I usually do is I sit down and think about what we've done in our books, or what we've done in our live shows, or what we've done in our podcasts to yeah. kind of anchor our understanding of it. And one of the things that struck me particularly was uh, the Viking world. Hmm. So. Uh, and particularly to do with Viking outlaws. There are, uh, you need to understand the kind of the Viking law system uh, to, to sort of appreciate how this works. But outlawry, making someone an outlaw, was the most severe form of punishment in the Viking world. These outlaws that were banished by society, they received no legal or social protection at all. Um, the prop their property is confiscated, they get no food, they don't get any help from anyone. Uh, under the threat of outlawry themselves. So if you if you help an outlaw, then you yourself will be banished. You will become an outlaw. It could also be killed by anyone without any retribution at all. Um, and one of the interesting aspects of outlawry in Iceland that I came across was that the outlaws were not allowed to be transported from the island, essentially turning itself, the island of Iceland itself, into a prison. So there's a, there are a number of um, you know people throughout the viking world throughout the viking period who are suffering from loneliness hmm. and one of the ways of looking into it is looking at something called the kjalnesinga saga i've probably pronounced that wrong and i'm sorry if i have um which I is one of the 
Oh, thanks, mate. Yeah. It's my, my Viking roots. It's one of the latest, last Icelandic sagas. It dates from around 1300, but these were written in 1300, um, looking back at, a, at an earlier, earlier period. So if you handle them carefully, they do really help you understand what was going on in the 11th, 12th centuries. Um, and this is about people who lived in uh, Kjallarnes, which is an area underneath Mount Ezja, across the bay from modern Reykjavik. It's there, I've been to Reykjavik recently, and it's there across the bay. It's very, very noticeable. Um, but it's particularly valuable, this entire saga, for what it says about outlaws in Viking society. They run throughout the entire thing. Um, so if you wanted to uh, go and look at that, the experience of, you know, loneliness, Vikings particularly being outside of their society, do go and have a look at this, the Kjalnesinga saga, that's K-J-A-L-N-E-S-I-N-G-A, -E pronounced something like I said, but that's what made me think. First of all, it was um, outlaws in Viking society. Then I remembered that you'd written a bit about um, garden gnomes in our, um, in our big book. Yes. Yes, um, well, I'm going to come to that later, possibly, oh, well, in, possibly in solitude. Okay, when we might, yeah, fine, perfect. I'm going to be talking about hermits in, in solitude, I think. Excellent. So, uh, yeah, I just wanted to start off by, by you know, saying that there are so many different uh, periods and locations you can look at, at loneliness in, and one of them is by studying outlaws in Viking society. Excellent, and outlaws in, outlaws in every society as well. I mean, when I was thinking about this, I was thinking about the outlaw Josie Wales and all those sort of loner characters in Clint Eastwood Westerns um, yeah. and those sort of, you know, those sort of um, liminal figures on the edge of society. Uh, it's also about witches as well, but we can come to that <laughs> an another time. Um, one of the things I wanted to think about is what's exceedingly difficult with a subject like this is to think about a set of solid documents that you would go to because historians often go to a sort of a run of documents that they might look at and in fact what you've got here is that something that's very very complex very diverse and so you're actually having to piece together uh, bits and pieces of information across a body of documents but I think if we if we think about one of the sort of main kinds of documents that you might use to look at this the kind of ego documents that a lot of social historians use so these are documents produced by individuals, they are letters, they're diaries, they're journals, sometimes it's creative writing, uh, but they are a really good source for the experience of loneliness. And I think what it's, what it, what they are really good at is, is, is looking at how individuals express their own loneliness. And mm. I want to illustrate this by uh, the journals of the poet Sylvia Plath, a woman who, a uh, very famous uh, poet, uh, was deeply depressed throughout her life, uh, famed for her relationship with the poet Ted Hughes. Um, it has, seems to have experienced a lifetime of loneliness and eventually committed suicide. And we've got a series of unabridged journals that survive that are being edited. And I just want to read you a couple of extracts from them because I think they are they're really telling of her her really sort of sad deeply um, distressing experience of loneliness God but life is loneliness despite all the opiates despite the shrill tinsel gaiety of parties with no purpose despite the false grinning faces we all wear and when at last you find someone to whom you feel you can pour out your soul 
you stop in shock at the words you utter. They are so rusty, so ugly, so meaningless and feeble from being kept in the small, cramped dark inside you so long ago. Yes, there is joy, fulfilment and companionship, but the loneliness of the soul in its appalling self-consciousness is horrible and overpowering. That's an extract from her unabridged wow. journals. And there's a, I've got another one here. Now I know what loneliness is, I think. Momentary loneliness anyway. It comes from a vague core of the self, like a disease of the blood dispersed throughout the body so that one cannot locate the matrix, the spot of contagion. I mean, doesn't that just really kind of get this sort of sense that it's, it's actually not... It's not about physically being lonely or separated from people in the sense of, of solitariness or isolation. It is literally that kind of physical core of yourself feeling this sort of deep sense of disconnect with society. That's amazing. What date? What sort of date was that? She's talking in the 1960s. Yeah. Here. And, and also Ooh. one of the interesting things is is the way in which this feeds into her poetry. So there's a very famous poem called Tulips, which was published posthumously in 1965 uh, and in a famous collection of poems, Ariel. Um, and I'll just read it to you. The tulips are too red in the first... So a little bit of context. So she's just had an operation. She's lying in the, in the hospital bed. Uh, and and, and a, a bouquet of tulips has been, it's sort of, you know, lying next to her. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The tulips are too red in the first place. They hurt me. Even through the gift paper, I could hear them breathe. Lightly through their white swaddlings, like an awful baby. Their redness talks to my wound. It corresponds. They are subtle, they seem to float, though they weigh me down, upsetting me with their sudden tongues and their colour, a dozen red lead sinkers around my neck. 
Nobody watched me before, now I am watched. The tulips turn to me and the window behind me, where once a day the light slowly widens and slowly thins, and I see myself flat, ridiculous, a cut paper shadow between the eye of the sun and the eyes of the tulips, and I have no face. I have wanted to efface myself. The vivid tulips eat my oxygen. Isn't that extraordinary? It is. It is completely extraordinary. And it makes you realise just, well, you know, also why it's a contemporary concern. When when you hear things like that, you realise how fundamentally it is important that, that you know, modern society gets a grip on loneliness and um, and, and and targets it and challenges yeah. it. Um, I can pick you up from there, actually. Here's, okay. a, here's a nice extract from 1759, two centuries before. Um, a top shopkeeper called Thomas Turner. He's in Sussex. His wife's just died. Not one, no, not one that attempts to pour that healing balm of compassion into a heart wounded and torn to pieces with trouble. Whenever it shall please the Almighty to take from me the wife of my bosom, then shall I be like a beacon upon a rock or an ensign on a hill, destitute of every sincere friend and not a friendly companion left to comfort my afflicted mind and yield that pleasing comfort of consolation to a mind quite worn to the grave with trouble. Yeah, he's an interesting character, Thomas Turner. I mean, he, there are over a hundred volumes of his of his diary that survive and he seems to have kept he seems to have kept it for a variety of reasons um partly sort of a, about accounting about his life but also partly uh looking at the relationship that he had with his wife and it was a it was a marriage that didn't quite live up to the ideal uh that he felt marriage should and so he a lot of the diary is about um you know, dealing with those, with the sort of tempestuous relationship with his wife. And he often finds solitude um, in companionship of friends. So we'll often go out of the house when they've had a row. But what's striking here is that he is expressing, you know, great sadness um, and loneliness when she has gone. Um, and he continues the diary after she's dead. Um, but then marries for a second time. And what's interesting is that when he marries his second wife, you know, shortly into the marriage, he stops writing because he is suddenly content and seems to have found the kind of happiness that he that he that he was after. That's interesting, isn't it? Loneliness as a spark for creativity. Yes. Uh, yes. Of, of, but anyway, to balance that quote with Thomas Turner's with the um, sorry what was the name of the poet from the 1960s it's the wonderful Sylvia Plath okay so Sylvia Plath and Thomas Turner um, who are really really struggling with their grief with their loneliness with depression um, I just think this is a really interesting rather flighty uh, contrast um, you'll know this it's yes. by William Wordsworth I wandered lonely as a cloud that floats on high o'er vales and hills, when all at once I saw a crowd, a host of golden daffodils, beside the lake beneath the trees, fluttering and dancing in the breeze. Continuous as the stars that shine and twinkle on the Milky Way, they stretched in never-ending line along the margin of a bay. Ten thousand saw I at a glance, tossing their heads in a sprightly dance, 
The waves beside them danced, but they outdid the sparkling waves in glee. A poet could not be but gay in such a jocund company. I gazed and gazed, but little thought what wealth the show to me had brought. For oft when on my couch I lie, in vacant or in pensive mood, they flash upon that inward eye, which is the bliss of solitude. And then my heart with pleasure fills and dances with the daffodils. It's oh. wonderful, isn't it? Brilliant. Well read as well, I think. Jim. It's beautifully read. Beautifully read. It's one of my favourite poems, actually. Ah, well, there we got him talking about the bliss of solitude. And you've got this impression of him being lonely as a cloud, wandering, wandering through Wales, looking at the daffodils. Um, what's interesting about this is he wrote the poem two years after the walk he went on that inspired him to write it. Hmm. Um, actually, it wasn't in Wales. He'd been in the, in the Lake District. Hmm. And on April the 15th, so it was about this time of year, um, everyone see the daffs out now. It is very wonderful. So put yourself in the feet of Wordsworth. Um, he goes for a walk. Um, he goes for a walk near Old Water Lake. I've never been there. If anyone has, tell me about it. Please get in touch. And I've been the... to Old Water. Oh, what's it like? It's beautiful, Sam. You'd love it. Oh, OK. Um, but this is the great thing about it. So um, Dorothy, his sister, wrote about the walk they were on. So um, the key point about this, of course, is that <laughs> Wordsworth was not on his own. Yes. When we were in the woods beyond Gobarra Park, we saw a few daffodils close to the waterside. We fancied that the lake had floated the seeds ashore and that the little colony had so sprung up. But as we went along and there were more and yet more, and at last, under the boughs of the trees, we saw that there was a long belt of them along the shore, about the breadth of a country turnpike road. I never saw the daffodils so beautiful. They grew among the mossy stones about and about them. Some rested their heads upon these stones as on a pillow for weariness. And the rest tossed up and reeled and danced and seemed as if they verily laughed with the wind that blew upon them over the lake. They looked so gay, ever glancing, ever changing. This wind blew directly over the lake to them. There was here and there a little knot and a few stragglers a few yards higher up but there were so few as not to disturb the simplicity and unity and life of that one busy highway. We rested again and again. So we've got, it's wonderful, you've got a sort of, she's overflowing with, with inspiration to write about these, just like Wordsworth was himself. Mm. Um, but she also later writes that it was a rather wet and windy day, and so the impression of it being a, a kind of a beautiful, um, puffy, cloudy sky. Uh, it's slightly gone there. But, um, you know, I think the interesting thing here is just that it's a much broader one about history, um, is that it's so easy to um, assume the truth of what you're reading. But you know, Wordsworth has, you know, slightly coloured this. He wasn't on his own. It may have been a bit windy and rainy. And, you know, the, the, the theme of loneliness and the bliss of solitude really sucks you into what he's writing about. But we must always be on our guard, James, to, um, to, to be sceptical about what we're reading. Yes, yes, or or to see it simply as creative literature, so it's it's different from history. It's not he's not um, he's not recovering a a walk that he's had or a scene that he's had. He's using it as creative inspiration for the romanticism of the egotistical eye, as oh, as they are as their their you know poets of his ilk uh, were wont to do. So I'm going to take you in a, a sort of in a similar direction but to create to link it to the material world so the material culture of loneliness um and this was this was something i found really striking about the about faybound alberti's 
book, The Biography of Loneliness, there's a chapter on the material culture of it. And it got me thinking about how do objects trigger loneliness? And partly objects trigger, they trigger thought patterns and memories and associations. Like in the, in our, to go back to our live show, the bit where we talk about the Titanic and you use your father's watch, your pocket watch, to talk about Robert Douglas Norman's death on the, t drowning on the Titanic, the watch that survived. We, we use that as a, as a link to being an object of memorialization that then connects us to other things. And so an object like that can trigger memories that you have, and particularly among people who are widowed. So objects, whether it be a, a chair that a loved one sat in, whether it be a box of, of letters or photographs or whatever, trigger reminiscences about the past and then trigger that kind of the sort of um, the emotional contact or loss of somebody um, and which reminds you of your situation which is around loneliness and there's a there's a chapter chapter four in um, biography of loneliness um, starts with a quote um, uh, from would you believe it from the channel four reality show uh, Gogglebox and there was mm. a an old couple on it a couple of years ago um, June and and um, Leon and they were they were really good he was he was a sort of rather sort of um, misogynistic uh, sort of character who was always teasing her. There was a lovely sort of spark between them. Um, but apparently she was recorded saying, after his death, she was recording, recorded saying, I looked over to his chair and mm. when I saw it, that was the first time I really, really cried after he died. So in a sense then, it is that it's that physical object that triggers those memories. And I can lead you on uh, I can up your Thomas Turner to Queen Victoria. And this appears later in the chapter. And Queen Victoria, we're, you know, we're, we're all probably very familiar with Queen Victoria's very long period of mourning after the death of Prince Albert, um, who she seems to have been absolutely besotted by. Um, and this was famously um, sort of put together in the the um in um the film mrs brown with judy dench where she goes up to scotland uh and um spends time with billy Connolly's character mr brown um and who sort of come you know uh, brings her out of her her doldrums but throughout the period after um albert's death she's been in 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 mourning um, she was buried with one of Albert's dressing gowns, we're told, uh, and a plaster cast of his hand. Um, she describes in her journal um, her deep sort of sense of mourning and loneliness. And in fact, for a, a while after his death, hadn't been able to keep up the um, the journal writing that she that she'd done ever since she was a girl. We have we have tons and tons of her, her writing. Um, so this is an extract from the 1st of January, 1862. Have been unable to write my journal since the day my beloved one left us. And with what a heavy heart I enter on a new year without him. My dreadful and overwhelming calamity gives me so much to do 
that I must henceforth merely keep notes of my sad and solitary life. This day last year found us so perfectly happy now. Last year music woke us, little gifts, New Year's wishes brought in by maid and then given to dearest Albert. The children waiting with the gifts in the next room. All these recollections were pouring in on my mind in an overpowering manner. Alice slept in my room and dear baby came down early, felt as if living in a dreadful dream. Later on saw the Duke of Newcastle in dear Albert's room where all remains the same, talking for long of him, of his great goodness and purity. Alice gave my beloved Albert's Xmas present, so precious and so sad. And she seems to have, she seems to have had this sense of loneliness sparked by various things, you know, whether it be the death of uh, one of his um, servants or men of, in his, in his office who died, then reminded her of her own loneliness and loss when she goes to visit the widow of this man and various other things like that so i think what's what's poignant about this is the it's the material culture of loneliness it's also this sense of nostalgia with something that is lost a past that is lost and it's also the the prominence of widowhood as a as a time when people within their lives experience loneliness Hmm. Brilliant. Well, I, you're, you're a genius. Um, when we, you started talking about that, I suddenly thought, oh, empty chairs. And yes. then you went, I was like, well, oh, kind of a shiver ran down my back. But it's, you know, it was a wonderful example, but it's not just empty chairs, is it? It might be a favourite teacup. It might be yes. all sorts of things. Um, Anything that reminds you of, of yeah. some, somebody. I mean, it's, one of, it's, it's one of the reasons why people keep mementos and memory boxes. And I remember yeah. my maternal grandmother, whenever we went to see them, they lived in Bedford, and whenever we went to see them, uh, she'd always take my mum up to the bedroom and at the top of her wardrobe was where she kept all the photograph albums and mementos from their childhood. And my mum and her would, would sit down and, and look through all of these and, and reminisce about people who were, were gone and passed. And it's this sort of this sort of human spirit and desire to remember the past and to create a sense of posterity, all of which is linked to linked to loneliness. Yeah, brilliant. Well, um, I tell you what, we should stop there and then we'll move on to solitude, I think, in a, in a part two Excellent. of this. It's been wonderful. Um, ladies and gentlemen, thank you all so much for listening. And um, we'd just like to do a special bit at the end here. Um, do please leave us um, a review on iTunes if you're listening on an iPhone. Um, it really makes a huge, huge difference. Helps us get up the charts, more people listen to us. And please also, um, if you've got a few quid spare, um, support us on patreon.com forward slash histories of the unexpected. James and I, we are, um, we're very agrarious people. We're usually out and about meeting you all and um, doing gigs all over the country. And of course we're not. I mean, we've cancelled maybe 15 gigs. So um, what we want to do is to carry on bringing you histories of the unexpected from our little desks across town um, and any money you can give uh, to us on Patreon will help that um, move forward. So uh, please do so. You can follow me on at Dr. Sam Willis on Twitter. And you can follow me on Twitter at James Daybell and you can follow the podcast on at Unexpected Pod. 
We're particularly interested in hearing from history teachers. Please, history teachers, get in touch when all of this clears. We'd love to come to your schools and also to hear about what you're doing in schools and, and how we can help. But that's it for now. Um, guys, check in very soon for part two of this, which will be entitled Solitude. Bye. Bye, guys. Stay safe. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.